in the morning and setting at night. And we know there's not a day where we don't face some type of trial or hardship. Sometimes that trial is internal and sometimes it's external. Sometimes it's physical pain and sometimes it's the driver in front of you. But we face every day, we face some type of trial or hardship, and we know day is going to be followed by night. We're tied to time, we're tied to hardship, and when we come into a discussion like we're going to have here this evening, it's hard for us to imagine. I don't have anywhere to be in eternity. I'm not on a schedule. Some of you are retired and you're enjoying. I... I um, I was just reading uh, something today, and it said uh, they're enjoying their retirement. They no longer have to get up at 3.45 a.m. But, you know, even in retirement, you're still tied to time. You You still have this concept, and there certainly is this hardship. But when we start talking about eternity, especially eternity for the Christian, for you and me, it is unfathomable. How awesome that's going to be. Uh, it's just, it's, it's beyond our ability to think about. So all we can do is read what the Bible says, believe it, rest in its promises, and then just imagine as best you can how great heaven is going to be. Really, how great it's going to be. We're coming tonight talking about when it's all brand new. And so this passage of scripture, the first eight verses it talks about this, this pulling back maybe of the veil a little bit of time and letting us have a glimpse into eternity, what it's going to be like. And to get our attention, the Holy Spirit uses a three-letter word four times in these eight verses, and it's the word new. New. He talks about things being made new. I want you to imagine for just a moment, think back to the first time you bought a brand new car or truck. Not new to you, but brand spanking new. You know those little rubber things on the side of the tires that stick out? They're they're still on that thing. You know what I'm saying? The white walls for some of you were perfectly white. It was so new. You get into that car and you smell the vinyl, or today it's the leather. The carpet has no stains in it. The vinyl has no cracks in it. The steering wheel didn't have that weird feeling to it that comes with age. I don't know if it's a buildup of grime or what it is. It's a brand new car. You remember that? Everything in that car was brand spanking new. The 8-track worked perfectly, whatever your first new car was. What about the time you, you moved into a brand new house? That's even better. You moved into a brand new house. Nobody lived there before. The carpet was crisp. The walls were without stains. All of the doorknobs and locks worked fine. The doors clicked shut like they should. Brand new cabinets. you remember that? No cracks in the sink. All the commodes flushed like they were supposed to. Everything in that house was brand spanking new. Not new to you, but a brand new house. A brand new car. There were no stains, no cracks, no rust. Everything was brand new. That's great to move into a house like that. That's great to sit behind the driver's seat, or behind the driving wheel, uh, the steering wheel rather, in that new car, that brand new car. It's great to sit and you're like, boy, this is just something. 
Now let your mind do as best as it can when everything that can be experienced and seen is brand new. Because God says in this passage of scripture we're about to read, Behold, I make all things new. Not just the inside of your car. Not just your brand new house. Everything is new. The planet is new. Space is new. Everything has been made to be like it was when God first created it. I can't imagine that. Let's read those first eight verses and see what God has to say about the time when it's all brand new. Death and hell have been cast into the lake of fire. The lost have been cast into the lake of fire. And chronologically, God says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are all passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning And the end, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Let's, let's stop right there. That will be enough for us to chew on tonight. When it's all brand new, God tells us that a couple different ways. First, he says um, that the former things are passed away at the end of verse number four. That's a very encompassing statement. The former things. What things? All of them. Everything that was is past. And then later he says, I have made all things new. So we come to this passage of scripture tonight with that topic. And I want you to look forward to that day. As a Christian, I don't think you can comprehend how good it's going to be, how changed it's going to be. If you've even thought yet what this planet is going to look like when all things are made new. You might be thinking to yourself, well, you know what? I wonder if we'll be able to fly. I wonder, without, you know, planes, I wonder if we'll be able to fly through the air, through space. 
And you might think to yourself, because I, I think I'd like to go fly in the Grand Canyon. I'd like to get down in that Grand Canyon, and I, the Grand Canyon's not going to be there. It's not. I like what Ken Ham said. Ken Ham is the guy who you know built the Creation Museum and got the Ark encounter going. Ken Ham said, when you consider it, the Grand Canyon is simply a sin scar that's on the face of the earth. It's a reminder of the tremendous flood that destroyed the planet. It's a scar. Now, it's majestic. If you've, I've never been into it. I've flown over it a couple times. It's impressive. There is no mistaking the Grand Canyon when you see it, but it's a sin scar. God's going to make everything new. So tonight, as we make our way through this, Just let your imagination run how good it's going to be when all things are made new and all the former things are passed away. It's an incredible thought. Let's begin. Verse number one, first of all, there's going to be a new creation. A new creation. It says in verse number one, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth were passed away. There was no more sea. You have a new creation in verse number one. First of all, a wrecked creation is destroyed. A wrecked creation is destroyed. Creation was wrecked in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve chose to sin. Prior to that, lions did not eat gazelles. Men did not have pain in their body. And the plan was women wouldn't have pain in childbirth. All of that changed in Genesis 3 when the curse of sin came and it wrecked creation. Now we read here that a wrecked creation is going to be destroyed. Sin not only destroyed our standing with God, it destroyed God's creation. This speaks of the day when our world and the universe are done away with and we start all over. And it says, it, it simply says this. They passed away. Isn't that an amazing... That's, I think the Holy Spirit is a master at understatement. Because that's a big deal. The planet's passed away. Space has passed away. He starts the word of God like that. When, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 or 2, when he talks about creating and creating space... He just says this as a byline. It's not even a complete sentence. It's a phrase in a sentence. He says this. He, he made the stars also. And then he just keeps going with the story. And you want to say, wait a minute, can we pause right there? He made the stars also? That's an understatement. If you want to go study light years and travel in space, to say he made the stars also, that's a big statement. And that the former earth and the former heaven has passed away and then he just moves on. That's a big statement. It's interesting here because it says they passed away. It just doesn't say how they passed away. But if you'd hold your finger here, because we'll come back, obviously, we're going to come back to Revelation 21. Would you turn back just a few pages? We'll put you into Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us how this earth passes away. Now listen for some key words in here. Let's read uh, 2 Peter 3. Let's start reading at verse number 7. 
it talks about those two words passed away in Revelation 21.1. Second Peter 3.7. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto, and here's our first hint, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants people to be saved. He has a gracious heart. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall, here's another hint, melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be, hint number three, burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy uh, conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting to under the coming of the day of God, Wherein the heavens, another hint, being on fire shall be dissolved with the elements uh, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. My goodness. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Well, here's a discussion on a new heaven and a new earth, just like Revelation chapter 21 How did it pass away? We don't know in Revelation 21, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're told that it melts away with all of those things, fire, a great noise, melt with fervent heat, burned up, dissolved, the heavens being on fire, again, dissolved, the elements shall melt with fervent heat. You get an idea how it's going to pass away? The first time, the earth was destroyed with water. The second time, with fire. Flood the first time, fire the second time. These are not descriptive things. You caught that word in verse number 10 where it said the elements will melt. The elements are the little letters. Literally, that word elements mean little letters or numbers in a row. It's describing the basic building blocks of the physical world. The elements are described for us in that thing. Now, let's go back to chemistry class in high school. For some of you, that may be a challenge, but let's go back. You remember the periodic table, the elements. That is an evolving table as mankind comes up to uh, speed with, with God's creation. Science and history are always going to be playing catch up with God. Now, there are 118 elements When some of you were in high school, there weren't that many. But it's up to 118 as of June 2023. All of those elements comprise the building blocks of everything you see physically. And each of those elements are made up of, they're made up of atoms. That's the smallest of the building block in the elements that make up our physical world. Now, it says in 2 Peter 3.10 that the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. When it says the elements, it's a plural plural word, and it's implying all of them. All of them are going to melt with fervent heat. 
Boy, that's hot, isn't it? Well, so what's the melting point? What's, what's the hardest element to melt? So I had to look that up. Tungsten is the hardest element. It's got the highest melting point. Do you want to take a guess what the melting point of tungsten is in degrees Fahrenheit? I had no idea. 6,192 degrees Fahrenheit. Let me just pause here. The Bible says that in the day of judgment, when the heavens and the earth will pass away, they will do so with fervent heat. The elements will melt with fervent heat. And all of those words mean exactly what you think they mean. The elements refer to the elements that make up our physical world. Melt means to dissolve due to heat. 6,192 degrees Fahrenheit to melt everything that is made up of tungsten in our world. That's fervent heat. The Bible tells us that erect creation is going to be destroyed by fire. How does that happen? When, uh, when you have the word Adam, the word Adam, A-T-O-M, not the name A-D-A-M, but the word A-T-O-M, that is a compound Greek word made up of two words, and those words mean to cut and not. A, not, T-O-M-O-S, Tomas, to cut. What it's saying is you can't cut an atom. Well, now we know that you can. We know that you can. We don't call it cutting an atom. What do we call it? Splitting an atom. When one atom gets split, what happens? Hiroshima. Nagasaki. Do you remember in Colossians when it says that of him and by him and through him all things consist? They're held together. Every atom in the world, in the universe, is held together by the omnipotent God. We split one atom and Hiroshima and Nagasaki happen. What happens when all of the atoms are no longer held together by God? Fervent heat. And the heavens and the earth will pass away. Now you're not going to be here. Thank the Lord. But this world is going to be destroyed. I don't think we ought to be a bad steward of our planet. I think we ought to take care of our planet. But I'm not a tree hugger, save the world kind of thing because the world can't be saved. This planet cannot be saved. If you think plastics are bad for the planet. I went to Kenya with Brother Terry here a few years ago. And as I was unpacking my suitcase, I don't even know if you remember this. As I was unpacking my suitcase, I had some things. I might have had shoes in my suitcase stuck into Walmart bags so it didn't get dirt all over my clothes. And when I opened my suitcase and Brother Terry saw those Walmart bags, he said, hey, he said, we just keep those bags hidden while we're here because plastic bags in Kenya are illegal. They banned them because they're bad for the planet. Now, like I said, I, I'm not for abusing the planet and everything, but if you think plastic bags are bad for this planet, we need to read Revelation 21 and 2 Peter 3 and see what God has planned for this planet. Fervent heat. 
it's creation is wrecked right now, but it's going to be, the Bible says it's going to be destroyed. 6,000, just remember that number, 6,192 degrees Fahrenheit it takes to melt the element tungsten. All the atoms in the world, God lets them go. Fervent heat. First, erect creation is destroyed. But the second thing I want you to see is a wonderful creation is displayed. Back to our chapter, Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Creation is going to be remade as it was before sin invaded. Before, uh, before Genesis 3 came into play, there was a perfect creation. And this newness in heaven and earth is going to be markedly different from everything we are familiar with now in earth and in space. Markedly different. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17 says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And would you now think about this because this is for you and me. And the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. If you like looking at nature and the mountains in the Rockies or the Alps, if you like looking at those things now, if you appreciate the vastness of the Grand Canyon or even the beauty of a desert, you need to take in all you can in this life because when God makes all things new, it's going to be so impressive, you will forget everything that you enjoy about this planet right now. I love to look at the mountains. I I think... Uh, I, I think I told somebody the other day, oh, we bumped into Roger and, and Roxanne over at the air show. It was up in Morristown yesterday, and we were talking about flying the helicopter. I'm like, ooh, I don't think so. If that thing has a mechanical problem, your options aren't much. But I said, if I ever go to Hawaii, I will take a helicopter ride in those mountains in Hawaii like used to be on Magnum P.I. When that, when that uh, helicopter goes in those valleys there, I think that would be awesome. I'd do a helicopter ride there. That's a beautiful place. It's just lush. But if you think the beauty of the earth, if you enjoy it now, get all you can. Because one day, what God makes is going to be so incredible. All the beauty that we enjoy now, living in East Tennessee in the fall. all that we, it's The new heaven and the new earth is going to be so incredible. We'll forget about what we see now. Isn't that a something? I love, we love watching the little nature shows that are on TV. And we enjoy those. And we look at that beauty. But to think that what's coming is going to be so great that we won't even remember these things. Let me give you an example. How different is it going to be? How how different is it going to be, this new earth that's coming? John says something here, and we read over it rather quickly at the end of verse number one. But would you mark this? There's no more sea. The oceans... That as you and I know them today, they're not going to exist. I don't know what that means. But the Bible says in the new earth, there is no more sea. Why is that? I want to read for you a, a, a paragraph from John MacArthur's commentary on the book of Revelation where it talks about no more sea. And MacArthur gives his explanation of this. I, I think this is, this is something to think about. Remember, by the time we come to Revelation 21, you're in a body that knows no more pain, 
It's been glorified, and and 1 John 3 says that we will have a body that's like Christ's at this point. Okay? So your body's complete. You have a body. It's a physical body, but it's perfect. Now listen to what MacArthur says about this, and there shall be no more sea. All life on earth is dependent today on water for its survival. And the earth is the only known place in our universe where there is sufficient water to sustain life. But believers' glorified bodies will not require water. Unlike our present human bodies, whose blood is 90% water and whose flesh is 65% water. Thus, the new heaven and the new earth will be based on a completely different life principle than the present universe. There will be a river of heaven, in heaven, not of water, but of the water of life. It says that in chapter 22 and verse 1 and chapter 22 and verse 17. I just think that's interesting. We have as much water on the planet as we do today because you and I need it. If we didn't have the seas that we have today, we would not exist. But in heaven, there's not going to be a need for a hydrological cycle. We won't need rain. We won't need the seas. We won't need any of that. So just, I said a moment ago, I'm going to ask you to let your imagination run tonight. Imagine this planet, and I don't know what the waters will look like, but the Bible says you won't have oceans. There will be no more seas. That's just one difference in the new earth that's coming. That's amazing. Well, there's going to be a new creation. That's verse number one. Verse number two says there's also going to be a new city, a new creation, and now a new city, New Jerusalem. I believe that's where you and I are going to spend eternity. I believe that's our, that's our heavenly home, the New Jerusalem. It's described in the book, and we'll get into it in detail maybe a little bit later, but let's look at this city that he's talking about. He says in verse number two, I, John, saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then that's all it says here about the new city. It'll describe it elsewhere, but that's all it says here. So what does he say about it? First, he says it's a perfect city. It's a perfect city. Ever since man's been on the planet, he's been building cities. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, and you find the first city being born. What do we know about cities? We know this. Every city, big or small, built by mankind, regardless of its size, has one thing in common. There is a collection of people that live in it that are sinners and they sin. Doesn't matter if it's Little Bay Jefferson City, Tennessee, or it's some city over in China that has 200 million people living in it. Cities on this earth right now are collections of people that live in sin and they are sinners and they're full of depravity. The larger the city, it seems, the greater the depravity. But John says, I saw the holy city. Every city, somebody said, is a reflection of its inhabitants. And we speak of a city here filled with sin and sinners Well, that city is a sinful city because it reflects who's there. This one is a holy city. It's been created by a holy God. And you and I have been made perfectly holy. And the inhabitants of this city are perfectly holy. God's holy. He's building a sin-free city. And he's putting into that city 
people that he has made completely holy and just. It is a perfect city. It's also a prepared city. He said it's a holy city. And then he said it's prepared. How is it prepared, John? It has been prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Most weddings, I won't say none of them because I've seen wedding photos and so have you, that you scratch your head when you look at them. But let's say, generally speaking, most weddings that take place, the bride goes to a great effort to prepare herself for that day. I mean, the the clothing is chosen. A lot of times someone is brought in to do hair and makeup, and that hair will never look like that again. They will have this, they'll have this hair done, and this is special for her day. And this makeup artist will come in and adorn her as best she can. She'll have jewelry on that day that she may never wear again. But when she walks down that aisle, man, I like watching the groom. When I do a wedding, I know everybody stands up and they turn, they look at that bride. But steal a peek at the groom when he sees his bride for the first time. I don't like the reveals that they do now. This has nothing to do with scripture. I like it when the first time that groom sees his bride on that particular day is when she walks in that door. And I look over at that groom and he is, he's just dumbfounded. He's never seen his girlfriend look like that. She is adorned as a bride for her husband. God says this, that city, he's not talking about the church here. He's talking about the city. That city is being prepared for you. And he said, the best I can describe it, it is going to look like an incredibly beautiful bride seen for the first time by her groom. It's a wonderful city. It's not just perfect. It's prepared. Jesus told us that back in John 14, didn't he? I go to prepare a place for you. This is the place. He's doing that now. And when we see it for the first time, we will be awestruck by its beauty. There's not a city in the world's history that will compare to that. It's going to be a great place. Right now, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 1 says that we dwell in tabernacles or tents of flesh. But we're going to move into a city that is perfect and has been prepared just for us. I like what Hebrews 11 verse 10 talking about Abraham, said that he looks for a city. He looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He looked for that city whose builder and maker was God. That's where we're headed. Not just a new creation. There's a new city. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're going to live in that city, and it's going to be like nothing you've ever lived in. Now, I, I'm not a city person. I like living out. I, I like where we live now. Our neighbors are kind of pushed away. I'm not antisocial, but if my neighbor, if mom and dad's fighting over next door, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear their dog yap all night. You know, I, I like living out, being spread out. But this city that we're living in, it's going to be unlike any other city. I, I look forward to living in that city. It's a, it's, a, it's a new city that has been prepared for us. There's a new creation, the whole earth. And I can't even imagine what it's going to look like. Keep in mind, this is just something I should have said earlier, there probably won't be polar caps anymore. 
I think the earth will go back to what it was at the original creation where all of the earth is the same perfect temperature. We have the polar caps because of the fall. In fact, I'll go so far as to say this. Most, if not all, of the mountains that are on the planet we have because of the flood. So what will that new earth look like? Man, I can't even imagine. What will this new city look like? I don't know, but Jesus has been preparing it for a long time, and it's perfect, and it's going to be incredible for us to see it. We'll be knocked, we'll be knocked off our feet when we see it for the first time. Then there's a new communion that's described in verses 3 and 4. God's talking about now his relationship with us, not just where we're going to live, but now he's talking about how we get along. It says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are all passed away. Verse 3 says this, it's going to be a time of personal communion. Now, right now, we have a personal relationship with God, don't we? Thank the Lord for that. You can go to him anytime you want. But this is talking about an incredible change in our communion with God. He will dwell with us spiritually. I know God now dwells with us spiritually in our hearts. Here, he's going to dwell with us physically. Right now, we have the promise that says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always. And we have him. But in this day, that physical separation that we have from God is taken away. God dwells with men. All barriers, sin, flesh, distance, all of those things are taken away. And we will see God face to face. Job knew this. All the way back in Job, chapter 19, he said this. I've got this going on in my life and this this thing I'm battling and this. But I know that in my flesh I shall see God. This is that day. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. This will be a new communion. It is going to be first a, a personal communion. We will see the one who loved us and gave himself for us. We'll see him. I haven't seen him yet. You haven't either. But we will. It'll be a personal communion. But verse 4 says it's going to be a pleasant communion. Don't you love verse 4? Verse 4 is one of those verses that, that add to our longing for heaven. It'll be a pleasant communion. What will this pleasant communion look like? You know, what? when we talk about heaven, a lot of times we talk about things that are going to be there, don't we? We focus on that. Streets of gold. Dad and mom. Angels, Jesus, this verse focuses on what is going to make heaven glorious because it's not there. So it's going to be a pleasant communion. Why? Well, first, there's going to be no more sadness. God's going to wipe away all tears. That word wipe away is one word in Greek. It means to blot out, to erase, to do away with. That's wipe away, gone forever. I like blotting out. Blot out is used, that word is used in the, in the New Testament elsewhere. He's going to take away all these tears. Uh, in this life, tears are part of our life, aren't they? For some more than others. I got one, I got one daughter, and I have a couple of sisters. In fact, I got in trouble one time with my mom because 
Matt and I knew if we wanted to, we could make our sister Debbie cry. We could do it. You just got to push the right buttons and she'll cry. And we did. Now, I know. I, I, I'll answer for all that at the judgment seat. Don't y'all worry about that. But tears are part of our life here. Sometimes they're tears of joy, but most of the time they're not. Most of the time our tears come because of we're sad. The first thing that's lacking in heaven is no more sadness. Job said, I pour mine, my, mine eye poureth out tears unto God. God cares about that, and one day he's going to wipe them away. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more separation. It says God will wipe away all our tears, and it says, and there won't be any more death. That's what death is, isn't it? Death is separation. It's not just separation, my soul and spirit from my body, but if I die, I'm separated from you. I have a, a guy I like to read and follow online. His name's Tim Chalice, and, and, and his little daughter asked him one time, she said, Daddy, why, is, why are goodbyes so hard? It's because God didn't create us to be separated. One day there's coming, there's no more sadness, but there'll be no more separation in death. We have an appointment with it. It is appointed unto men once to die, but in heaven, no more. Death is gone. 1 Corinthians 15.26 says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. We read about that in chapter 20 and verse number 14 this morning. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus is taking us to a place where death is banned. No more sadness. He wipes away all tears. No more separation. He does away with death. No more sorrow, it says. That word means to mourn. This sorrow is deeper than sadness. There are things that make us sad, but then there are those things in our life that cause us to mourn. Have you ever had a broken heart? That's what this is addressing. Sometimes we're sad. Our heart's not broken. We're just sad about something. But this is talking about those things that absolutely break our hearts. Have you ever been through a deep affliction? That's what this is talking about. Deep, hard trials. The Bible says here, no more sorrow. That's going to be done away with. Heaven will never be blighted by the problems that break our hearts. That's done away with. No more sadness. No more separation. No more sorrow. No more sighing. Something else it says here. It says there won't be any crying. No crying. Crying out in anguish. No, no devastation. No wayward children. No hurt feelings. No arguments. God seems to be emphasizing again and again and again here with no sadness, no sorrow, now no crying, no, sorrow, no sighing. Nothing in heaven, I wrote, this is what I wrote, God seems to be emphasizing that nothing in heaven will interrupt our joy and our peace. These things are, they're gone. The former things are all passed away. Not just lions eating gazelles, but things that break your heart. No sadness, no separation, no sorrow, no sighing. He goes on to say, neither shall there be any suffering, no more pain. No more pain. 
the suffering that comes from toil or labor, that which exhausts you or fatigues you. No burdens. We were talking after church this morning with a couple about the burden that this world has on us and Satan places burdens on us. Jesus said, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. Here, the pain is taken away. No more suffering. And then it just wraps everything up. I love that summary statement at the end of verse number four. In explaining all these things, God will wipe away tears, no more death, no more, uh, te- no more suffering, no more pain. The summary statement is this, for the former things are all passed away. Any cause for pain, sorrow, suffering, grieving, crying, all of those things are done away with. Heaven is going to be glorious because of the things that are there, but it's going to be glorious because of these things that are not going to be there as well. There's a new creation. There's a new city. There's a new communion now with God. He's dwelling with us, and all of those things that detract from our communion with God, they're gone. And then finally, there's a new condition, and that's in verses 5 through 8. A new condition. Verses 5 and 6 contain a heavenly declaration. Verses 6 and 7 have a heavenly dispensation. And then verse 8 has a heavenly determination. Those are the three things. Let's walk through them. First in verses 5 and 6, there's this declaration that God makes. He that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write. Get this down, John. Make make sure you don't miss this. For these words are true and faithful. A heavenly declaration. God issues a promise. And this is something we can count on. The promise is this. I make all things new. This world is going to vanish away. It says in Isaiah 51 and verse 6. It's going to be done away with. And when it does, we have God's absolute promise. He'll make it new. Dr. Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite old preachers. I look forward to meeting this Scottish preacher one day. Dr. McLaren said, how can we be sure that these radiant hopes are better than delusions or lights thrown on a black curtain or the reflection of our own imagination? How can we be sure this is true? He goes on to say this, only Because he that sat on the throne and is therefore sovereign over all things has declared that he will make all things new. His power and his faithful word are the sole guarantees. How do I know this is true? God said it. Write this. What I'm telling you, John, is faithful and true. I will make all things new. You and I can absolutely trust God's declarations. If he says it, You mark it down. In fact, you can bank your eternity on it. If he said it, it's true. That's this heavenly declaration. And then in verses 6 and 7, it talks about a heavenly dispensation. When I say dispensation, I'm not talking about a period of time. I'm talking about something being dispensed. So what is it? Verse 6 says that at the the middle of verse number 6... I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God and he shall be my son. There's some things being dispersed here. 
some things that God is giving out. He has some precious gifts to give those who are welcomed into this new city. First, it says he gives life in verse number 6. They don't ever have to fear. We know that because of verse 4. They don't ever have to fear death. They have life given to them. They drank from the water of life when they accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and now their heavenly existence is guaranteed to be eternal. He gives them life. He also, it says in verse 7, he gives them this a, a wonderful inheritance. He says, they shall inherit all things. Don't you love that passage of scripture? We won't turn there, but that says that we are joint heirs with Christ. He's given us all things. This one sitting on the throne who said at the beginning of verse 6, he says this, it is done. It is done. I am Alpha and Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. What I'm saying is absolutely sure. You can count on these things. In heaven, we finally receive the inheritance that we were promised back in 1 Peter chapter 1. This inheritance that is incorruptible and fadeth not away. Now it's going to be ours. I don't know what all that's going to involve, but I'm looking forward to it. I don't know what that all looks like. But I'm anticipating this great day. There's this heavenly declaration when he says, I make all things new. Then there's this heavenly dispensation when he says, here's what I'm going to give you. And then in verse 8, finally, there is this heavenly determination. God has determined something that there is a group of people that will never see heaven. Now, I make my way through, down through this list, and I look about this. The, we've talked about the glory of heaven. We've talked about what's, improm- what's been promised to the inhabitants. And he closes this section out before moving on in verse 9. He closes this section out by reminding us not everybody's going to heaven. And he says some interesting things here. And as you make your way down this list, you might say to yourself, well, that's not me. I, I've never done that one. But then you start noticing, boo, I have done that one. I, I, I did do that. Let's, let's look at his list. These are people that are banned from heaven. First, he says, the fearful. In verse number 8, but the fearful, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, whoremongers, sorcerers, adulterers, all liars, shall have their part in the lake of And the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. They're banned from heaven. First, it's the fearful. Those who allowed the fear of man to keep them from coming to Christ. They're not going to be in heaven. Then he says the unbelieving. They refuse to believe on Jesus. You could write next to that one, John 8, 24. Then he says the abominable. What does that word abominable mean? That refers to those who gave themselves to vile, wicked lifestyles. Now you might be thinking to yourself, Ooh, Pastor, if you knew me before I got saved, I was abominable. Am I banned from heaven? What's, what's he talking about? Keep going. Murderers. Those who willingly took the lives of others. But what did we learn in the Sermon on the Mount? That if you hate someone in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Oh, pastor, there have been some people I've hated. Am I banned from heaven? Whoremongers. 
those who are given to lives of sexual perversion. Sorcerers. That's an interesting word. That word sorcerers, pharmakeus, the word from which we get pharmacy, it ties drug use and sorcery together. Banned. Witchcraft, familiar spirits, banned from heaven. Idolaters. Those who worship false gods. Have we ever been guilty of idolatry in our lives? Probably from time to time. And then it says all liars. That just got us, didn't it? If you've been able to avoid every one of them up to now, you just got nabbed. All these people are banned from heaven. They're not coming. They're going to hell. So does that mean that anyone who has ever committed those sins can't go to heaven? Is that what that's saying? No. Have I committed those sins? Yes. Have you? Yes. Are we banned from heaven? No. Then what does verse number 8 mean? Let's wrap it up tonight with this. This verse is saying that those who committed those sins and never had them forgiven through salvation in Jesus Christ are still responsible for their sin and they cannot go to heaven. They're that group we talked about this morning. You see, I've committed those sins. You've committed those sins. But when we got saved, we swapped our sins for the righteousness of Christ. Those who never made Dr. Manley refers to to, uh, C.S. Lewis's phrase all the time, those who've never made the great exchange. I think that's Lewis. Those who've never swapped their sinfulness for his righteousness, that's verse number eight. And so all these wicked things that I've done will keep people from going to heaven, but it won't keep me from going to heaven. Why? Because I've made the great exchange. We've made that swap. You know what verse number eight is? God is so good. Verse number 8 is just one more gracious warning to come to Christ. It's for us. I'm looking forward to this day. I am. This is a great day. The day when all things are made brand new. That's an unfathomable concept that God puts in his word just to give you something to think about. But you're never going to be able to imagine what it's really going to be like, nor am I. I don't care how many, how many degrees a person has in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, or French. They can't fathom what it will be like in studying everything God tells us. They can't fathom how great heaven is going to be. We have no way to relate to all things being made new. Because we've never seen it. All we've dealt with all of our lives for the last how many thousands of years has been with a cursed, fallen, hard, sinful, anti-God world. Everything. The way business is conducted, the way finances are formed, everything about our lives. Even our lives themselves. We have a birth date, but we're going to die. It's appointed to men once to die. We can't fathom a place where someone never dies. Doc was talking about this morning, and uh, he, he mentioned Methuselah today. 
I, I don't know what year it would be, but go back 969 years from September 17th, 2023. Go back 969 years, and that's Methuselah's birthday. That doesn't make any sense to us, does it? Adam lived, uh, what, 930 years. Joseph, he died a young guy. He only lived to be 110. When we talk about numbers like that, we're like, that's amazing. What about a place, a perfect world where there is no death, and you walk in, and every desire you have is fulfilled in Jesus Christ for eternity? That's an unfathomable dynamic. That's the blessed hope of the Christian. I'm glad to be past the end of chapter 20, that terrible judgment where every person there is condemned, and I'm so glad to walk into a new creation and a new city and a new communion. All of these things that God is giving, he, he's given to us, all of these promises saying that the few hardships you suffer in this life will not compare to what awaits you in heaven. That's going to be a good day. That's going to be a good day. Amen. Let it let it be at the back of your mind. When you're going through your hardest day uh, in this life, your hardest day, imagine what that will be, your hardest day. What, what would make your, what, what would cause you to say, this is the worst day of my entire life. On that day, remember the beginning of Revelation 21. God is going to make all things new and this life is going to pale In our memories, it's going to fade away. Former things are all passed away. All things made new. And God's going to do that just for you. You know why? Because you're his child. I will be their father. They will be my sons and daughters. That word's all-encompassing. God's going to do that for you because you're his child. That's going to be a great day, isn't it? Let's stand together. We'll go out tonight thanking the Lord for that for that day. I'd like to give you, before I close this off in prayer, I'd like to give you a prayer request tonight that was given to me today by Bill Childress. Bill and Van Childress come to our church. They sit right back there behind Jeff Crow, uh, where Jeff's at. They sit right back there. Uh, Bill has learned recently that he has pancreatic cancer, and Van is awaiting tests to see if her cancer has returned. He texted me today telling me those things, and uh, she's got an appointment on September 25th. He's got an appointment on the 29th, and he said, I'm requesting that our church family pray for us. I think that's one of the most scriptural things a believer can do is ask his brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for them. And so I'd like you to add Bill and Van Childress, uh, two children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ here, I'd like you to add them to your prayer list and be praying for them in the days ahead. He said, "He said I'll be there when I can. I just don't feel very good on these days. But he was here this morning. So would you pray for Bill and Van um, and add them to those that you're already praying for um, and do that because one day you're going to be requesting this church family be praying for you and your family. And so let's pray for others like others pray for us, all right? Father, we are so thankful for your word and its promises. The hope that we have that the suffering in this present world cannot compare to what you've promised us. 
Thank you for telling us now that one day all things are going to be made new. And we look forward to that day. God, we can't wait to see you face to face. To see and even to touch Jesus who gave himself for us. And all of these struggles and these griefs and these hardships. The broken hearts. The toil that we we experience here. All of that gone. We can't imagine that day. But Lord, we believe it. Because your word is faithful and it is true. And we love those words where you say in your word, it is done. It is as good as done already because you've declared it. So help us to rest in you, Lord, and to trust in your promises. And regardless of the hardships and the griefs that we face here, may we come back to this that one day you will make all things new. And we're going to rejoice in that day that tears are wiped away. Death is gone, sorrow is gone, pain is gone, all these former things, Lord, will have passed away. And we're going to praise you for eternity, for what you've done for us, and for who you are. Bless these families as they head to their home tonight. May you guide every decision we make this week. We do pray for Bill and Van Childress. We ask that your grace would be sufficient to them. We pray that for Jason and Kate. For others in our church who are walking through deep trials, some have tests and appointments this week, God, that you know about. And since you know the end from the beginning, we're going to commend all of these men and women into your good care, thanking you for what you do. We pray all this in the great name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a, have a great week.